Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Livock and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. So today on the podcast, Michelle and I will be discussing how we adjust therapy to suit neurodivergence, and we'll also discuss common mental health issues that can overlap or come up in the therapy space when we're working with neurodivergent clients. So Monique, when you're working with a neurodivergent client, how do you usually adjust the therapy process or the therapy space? Well, the number one thing is to actually be aware that your client is neurodivergent Mm -hmm. because so many people are underdiagnosed, particularly women and people of older generations. It's our responsibility as clinicians, whether we're working in mental health or physical health, to educate ourselves on neurodivergence so that we can adjust therapy appropriately. So once you've uh, realized that your client is neurodivergent, what types of things or is there anything that you would do differently in that space? Well, first I would really get to know my client um, because everyone that presents um, with neurodivergence, whether it's ADHD, autism, um, or anything in between, every person is different. And there is a saying Mm -hmm. that if you've met one person with autism – you've met one person with autism. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I think that extends to, you know, other things as well. Yeah. Um, so based on really getting to know the client, getting to know their history, what I study is their nervous system. Okay. Because how regulated or dysregulated their nervous system is, is going to tell me what we need to focus on in therapy. And also how do they respond to the stresses in their lives? Um, what trauma load are they carrying And based on what resources a person has, so what support system, what are their own coping strategies, then I'll select different types of therapies. In my brain, in therapy, everything is very systematized. So Mm -hmm. when I learn information about someone that I'm working with, it kind of gets plugged into this analytic data system in my brain that Mm -hmm. has all these subgroups and like pathways and it just tells me okay this strategy is going to fit this particular need this other strategy is going to fit this other need and I kind of look at it as building up the person um, and showing them how to build themselves up from the ground level up um, Mm -hmm. in their nervous system and their regulation skills because what I've tended to find and this is just my personal experience is that people who are neurodiverse normally are quite sensitive um, and their nervous systems are normally quite sensitive. So I might bring up a particular topic in therapy and, you know, such as like, okay, let's, let's talk about mindfulness or practice some mindfulness technique. For some people going in and paying attention to their thoughts and feelings, that might be too overwhelming. Or even not a skill that they have mm, in, the, mm. in their wheelhouse. Um, yeah. Because yeah, I find that often, you know, as a coping mechanism, um, sometimes people who are neurodivergent, as we chatted about in our last episode, um, can tend to lean towards that sort of disassociation um, side where a way of managing feeling overloaded constantly or overwhelmed constantly um, Um, is just to completely shut down. And so then when we come into the therapy space and the therapist is saying, okay, so tell me, like, how do you feel about this? What are you thinking? It's sort of like, well, I have no idea. (laughs) 
Mm. (laughs) I'm here. (laughs) I'm in the room. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing is to not make assumptions Mm. as a clinician about what skills the person has or what do they know? Because often people don't know what they don't know. And so I might, you know, start to work on, you know, building a mindfulness skill, but we need to really dial it back and start with something maybe more simpler such as um, some psychoeducation um, on what are emotions or what are body sensations um, Mm -hmm. because the person might not be able to pick up on those or they don't know how or never have thought about it in that way. So I normally start off with a lot of psychoeducation about emotions, different thinking patterns, um, body sensations, and then go to strategies. But before getting into the strategies in particular, my aim the whole time in a therapy session is to try and ensure that the client is kept within their window of tolerance Mm -hmm. Um, because, yeah, sometimes if I'm introducing too much information too quickly, it might be too much for the person to process um, or tapping into a, a big emotion. Again, if they haven't built those emotional regulation skills, it might be too much for them to process in the session. And then they might go into potentially a meltdown or a shutdown. Mm-hmm. So they might go up into fight or flight mm-hmm. or down into freeze um, and not be within that window of tolerance where they can be present in the room and sit with an emotion without it overwhelming them. So it sounds like the goal in that kind of early therapeutic process is really to arm the client with um, like a toolbox of skills and strategies to sort of manage uncomfortable feelings, um, be able, as you were saying in our last episode, Monique, to sort of sit with an uncomfortable feeling, but not so much so that it's going to completely overwhelm the person. So what types of things would you um, use to upskill a client within that space? What types of things would you suggest or support them in developing? Yeah, so I talked to them about um, mainly psychoeducation, about anxiety. So we talk about what are the symptoms of anxiety in their body and of the fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so really kind of increasing their knowledge of yeah, their own, of their um, own bodily body. response. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I teach them diaphragm breathing, mm-hmm. um, which works really well to help with panic attacks um, and to just try and keep the body in that window of tolerance Mm, mm. um i teach them grounding techniques so looking at mindfulness um like with your five senses what can you see what can you hear for people with adhd it can be difficult to focus on doing like a meditation when you're just sitting still so um sometimes i'll actually get up with the client in the room and we'll do a walking meditation and we walk around um but very slowly um and so by really slowing down each movement it's being aware of each part of your foot that is touching the floor and labeling in your mind, you know, heel, middle, toe. Um, And we might do that for a couple of minutes, you know, at the start of a session Mm -hmm. to get the person into their window of tolerance. So it's interesting because I know, you know, for a lot of people hearing things like that, like, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, we do breathing and we think about our feet. Um, (laughs) It can sound a bit like, oh, that I don't Mm -hmm. understand how that would help or I don't Mm -hmm. get like how that would actually um, support regulation. Mm -hmm. And I definitely remember, you know, for me, before I knew the why of why is diaphragm breathing actually helpful, Mm -hmm. I 
I had the same thoughts mm-hmm. and be like, oh my God, do not tell me to breathe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this yeah. is infuriating. Um, but I think the really important thing to mention there is that not all breathing is created equal. So when we talk about, and when psychologists talk about um, breathing or diaphragm breathing in particular, um, the reason that it's actually so helpful is it actually stimulates um, different neurotransmitters in your brain and supports the release of um, regulation at a neurochemical level. So sometimes when we think we're deep breathing, really what we're doing is hyperventilating, a form of hyperventilating, right? So breathing quite quickly into the top part of our stomach. That actually triggers our brain to think that we're still in stress and it releases more stress chemicals like cortisol and adrenaline, um, which actually perpetuates the stress cycle. When we breathe really deeply into the bottom part of our lungs, and crucially, when we focus on our lungs expanding outwards laterally rather than forwards, um, that has the opposite effect. That signals to our brain that the threat is over um, and reduces the amount of cortisol and adrenaline that's pumping through our body. So um, really slowing your breathing down and breathing in through your nose out through your mouth. And sometimes when you're first starting this practice, actually having your hands, placing your hands on the sides of your ribs and really focusing on breathing into your hands. So you can literally feel your hands expanding out, breathing in for a count of four through your nose and out through a count of five through your mouth. Um, and following that process, maybe three or four times. Um, no, it's not going to make the problem go away. It's not going to magically fix everything that's going on. Um, But what it will do is actually lower your level at a biological level of stress and Mm -hmm. help calm your nervous system down so that you're in a space where you can think more clearly. Yeah, exactly. And and I find that a lot of people, uh, when they come, will be like, oh, yeah, I've heard of breathing. Why do I need to do <laughs> I that? I do it every or, day. <laughs> yeah, you know, and breathing techniques, blah, blah, blah. But like no one's really gone through and actually done the proper psychoeducation and mm. really explain why, you know, or they may not have taken the time to actually practice the exercise and have that experience so often I'll get people to rate their level of stress on a scale of zero to ten and then in the session we'll do at least two to three minutes of the diaphragm breathing and then I'll get them to rate their level of stress they feel in their body after doing that and often it will be a lot lower and so they've actually had that felt experience of wow Mm. this works Mm. Um, that's a really key point there I think about the felt experience and often people who are just used to operating at an extremely high level of stress in terms of you know how stressed your nervous system is um, don't actually have a comparison point for what it feels like to feel calm in your body so having those experiences and I think the therapy room is a really good place to practice doing that where you can actually um yeah exactly as you said Monique Mm -hmm. have that felt experience of what does it feel like when I'm not at this level of Mm -hmm. stress yeah that's a good point because when we're going through um the education about anxiety again I explain I guess like having an anxiety thermometer and again on that scale of zero to ten I ask people, where would your everyday level of stress or anxiety be, even if there's nothing like major, major going on? 
And most of my clients will say, oh, five or a six. Mm. And then we talk about how, well, if you're creeping up close to an eight, nine or 10, that's sort of a point at which it's going to be really hard to bring yourself back down. And that's the point at which a lot of your strategies are going to be difficult to use or they'll take a lot longer to have an effect. So it's about monitoring where you are on that stress scale and noticing if you're starting to creep up and then actually using your techniques like the diaphragm breathing and continually bringing your score down down with the diaphragm breathing so that you're never hitting that eight, nine, ten point. And that's where you can start to, you know, try to work with your nervous system and do a little bit of retraining. And I think the point is that some of these strategies in your toolkit, they're not going to change your neurodivergence. Mm. You know, they're not there to make you a different person or change your genetics. Some people are born with a higher sense of anxiety in their body and they are more sensitive to their nervous system. And that's why they need the extra supports and strategies to kind of regulate their nervous system um, more than maybe somebody else needs to. Yeah. And I think something that I find really important and that is really important in my practice um, for everyone, but again, particularly for people who are neurodivergent is really explaining the why of certain strategies, because, you know, you can tell someone to do something and say, oh, this will help. But often if the person doesn't know why it's helping or why you're suggesting this thing, it's really difficult for them to implement that into their lives. Um, I think, you know, with the mindfulness stuff and the connection to body and really thinking about, um, you know, how your body feels in certain situations or, you know, tuning in and then labeling things like you were saying before, you know, heel, soul, uh, toes, whatever. Um, the reason that that's a strategy is because that actually strengthens, and this is at a biological level, strengthens the connections in your nervous system between different parts of your body and your conscious awareness. Sometimes the reason that we might not know what we're feeling is because the pathways between that particular or those particular parts of our body and then our language center, which enables us to kind of label those sensations or feelings, um, isn't super strong because it hasn't been well trodden. So the more we tread those pathways and the more we engage in those activities that really kind of consciously uh, involve focusing on these different sensations, what we would call those things and being aware of that, all of those links become stronger. So that can really help with what you were talking about before, Monique, which is your anxiety thermometer, right? Because it's really tricky to know where you're sitting on that if you're not actually aware of what's going on in your body. Um, and the more you're aware of how you're feeling and what your body's telling you, the more insight you have into where you are on the, say, anxiety thermometer, and then the more you can do about it. Because often with clients who are neurodiverse or clients who have a really hard time connecting to those felt sensations, it's not actually until we are at an eight that they're like, mm. oh, okay, I'm feeling upset or overwhelmed. Yeah. And then as you were saying, it's so hard to mm. put things in place to bring yourself back down when you're at that level. Yeah. And then it's a meltdown or mm. a shutdown. Panic attack. Yeah. yeah. Panic attack or dissociating. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I really like what you said about the pathways in the brain. And it's like, Starting off with piddly little, you know, side roads and then practicing so that you get 
you know, super highways mm. in the brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Mm. And I think the other thing to say there too is that we often think of our brain as just the mushy stuff that's in our skull, um, but our brain is our entire nervous system. Our brain extends all the way down to our visceral organs. Um, It's our whole nervous system structure. So literally go onto Google and Mm. Google image search uh, human nervous system and you'll see how far our brain actually extends into Mm. our body. So when we talk about pathways in the brain, it's not just in the mushy thing in our skulls. Mm. It's actually our entire connection to different areas of our body. Yeah, our hearts, our lungs, Mm our digestive system, our bowels. Cervix for women. Yeah. So like a lot of people um, who are neurodivergent will have digestive issues. So if you make that link with people and go, hey, actually practicing diaphragm breathing, that could potentially help settle your gut down, Mm. you know, and help you not to have diarrhea. (laughs) You know, or it could actually, you know, um, there is studies out there linking CBT and stuff like that with treating IBS. People can see the benefits. Brains can get very noisy. I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through the huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favorites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like an evening in Jasmine's garden, Merida's mystical Scottish forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like rolling thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription and new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to calm.com slash n-e-u-r-o for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash neuro. So in terms of how your room is set up, Monique, and and things you kind of allow in the therapy space or tools you might utilize in the therapy space, um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so my room is set up for neurodivergence. Um, The lighting is dim. There's not the overhead fluorescent lights. There's warm lamps. Um, have a lava lamp in my room. Um, all the colors are soothing. Um, depending on the person, I might have essential oils going. Um, there's natural light. 
Um, and I have, uh, I guess, a, a toolkit full of different sensory tools that people can use in session, especially while they might be talking or doing some talk therapy to fidget with. Mm-hmm. So I've got like a fidget popper. I've got a cool sort of like light up lamp that has glitter in it. Um, I've got like a puzzle ball, um, different sort of sensory objects. And when I'm working with people that have ADHD and they might be a bit hyperactive, we don't have to sit down Mm. the whole time. Uh, Sometimes we'll be playing a game, like I've got a basketball hoop on Mm -hmm. one of my walls and we'll be like shooting hoops and trying to see, you know, who can score (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, the basketball hoop. Sometimes if a client doesn't want to sit, I guess, um, face on to me or have to look me in the eyes, like that's completely fine. We sit sort of angled sideways or mm-hmm. like away from each other. Um, yeah, the, the, we don't have to have unnecessary talking if the client doesn't want there to be unnecessary talking. Um, there might be periods of silence um, where the client's regulating themselves. So, yeah, it's about just using sensory toys and fidgets and being aware of the sensory environment in the room. And I, I encourage my clients to bring in their own sensory soothing devices. So mm-hmm. I've had people come out in with like fidget poppers or their favorite blanket or like a stuffed toy. It's about allowing the client to unmask in the therapy room as well. Um, so going, you know, if you're masking, you don't have to do that here. You can stim in front of me. We don't have to have eye contact. You can get up and move around. You can sit on the floor. You can take your shoes off if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really just being attuned to the client and yeah. what their needs are. What does their nervous system and sensory system need to feel safe and to feel attuned And that might be the first time that they've been able to unmask as an adult Mm. in the room with somebody else, you know, Mm. Mm. so that can be a very powerful experience in itself of safety. Yeah, I think that's really relevant as well for the idea of a window of tolerance, because if someone is expending um, a bunch of energy, um, you know, trying to sit with sensory discomfort or stop themselves from stimming in a way that they want to, um, or feeling restless internally, feeling that kind of cabin fever sensation of sitting for too long, something that is just uncomfortable for them in the space, then that's actually taking up space Mm. on that anxiety thermometer. And we might not think of that as anxiety and we probably wouldn't label it as such, but you know, another word I guess for an anxiety thermometer is just our nervous system's stress thermometer, you know, Mm. stress essentially in in its core meaning is pressure on our nervous system. Mm. How much pressure is our nervous system dealing with at that point in time? And, you know, there's so many things that can put pressure on our nervous system, sensory stuff being one of them. So, you know, in a therapy space when we're really actually trying to deal with some difficult stuff or introduce concepts or ideas or tap into feelings or past traumas or whatever's going on that's really difficult to deal with, what we want to try and do is empty as many stress points as we can, like unnecessary stress Mm. points, there's no need to feel sensory discomfort. So if you feel like that's something that you're having to manage in in your therapy space and there's aspects of that space that, um, you know, making you feel uncomfortable, I would really uh, recommend just bringing that up with your therapist because they likely have no idea Mm. because it's likely not stressing their nervous system. And sometimes if you just say, hey, actually, the lights are kind of making me feel nauseous. Would it be okay if we turn them down? Or, you know, 
I really actually prefer sitting on the floor. This couch is kind of making me feel a bit yuck. Um, Can I just sit on the floor? Nine times out of 10, your therapist is going to say no problem. And if they do have a problem with that, they're probably not the right therapist for you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's really about the client. Mm. Um, You know, I've had people ask me if they can wear sunglasses during the session. Um, And I've said, yeah, sure. Or can we lower the blind? Or I've had people tell me, look, the waiting room is too much for me. It's too loud and noisy. It's very crowded. So we've had an agreement what they might wait outside the clinic, you know, in the garden Mm. or um, sit in the quiet space just outside my room. Um, So again, it's just about being flexible. Some other things that are worth noting is that say if a client is mute, so they're overwhelmed or they don't want to talk in a session, um, part of being flexible might be coming to an agreement that, okay, you can just write down on, uh, you know, a computer or, you know, a letter pad, um, what you want to talk to me about. And then I'll talk back sometimes as well. Um, because a lot of neurodivergent people have auditory processing issues, um, or short-term memory issues. I make sure I write things down on the whiteboard and I let people take pictures of it, or I give them handouts and I make sure I provide a lot of visuals. If it's just talk, 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 they might not retain it. Yeah. That's a really good point about the visuals, um, and having that as sort of a take-home aid for people. And if you feel like in your therapy space, that's something that you would really benefit from, um, or you kind of would prefer if things were written down so that you could see them better, um, and retain them better. Uh, I definitely would suggest just advocating for that with your therapist and saying, Hey, a couple of times, you know, I've left, um, this space and I've had a really hard time Um, remembering what we've talked about or the kind of points that we agreed on or, or, you know, strategies that we went over, Um, would we be able to kind of write them on the whiteboard or could you give me a handout to leave with? Yeah. And one point I think as well with regards to therapy is sometimes because of having a smaller window of tolerance or just having, I guess, everyday stresses and then probably a trauma load Mm. Um, and then whatever issues, you know, a person's neurodivergence brings up for them. Sometimes therapy can take longer Mm. with people with neurodivergence and sometimes um, there'll be successes and sometimes, you know, things will go back a little bit. And I think it's really important for both the client and the clinician to have patience and, to, you know, know that, yeah, sometimes it does take a bit longer. Um, and yeah, some people just might need like that ongoing therapy or that support because maybe that's the only area in their life they're getting some support for around yeah. their neurodivergence or around managing stress. And yeah, for some people it might be ongoing therapy over a long period of time to help them manage things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, for some um, clinicians, there's this sort of prevailing idea that therapy should have a goal and we should be working towards a goal Mm. and there should be a set number of sessions um, that are involved in achieving that goal. And if the goal isn't achieved in those sessions, then you should terminate therapy because the client isn't motivated or it's not the right time for them or for whatever reason. And that whole kind of notion is really, I guess, based on the CBT model. So the cognitive behavior therapy model, um, which definitely has its positives. Um, I think, you know, there is utility in understanding how our thoughts impact our emotions and behavior, but it's really a model that, you know, kind of focuses on, well, if you don't want to feel this way, 
You just need to change how you think about it and stop doing the behaviors that are making you feel that way. And then you'll be fine. (laughs) Yeah. And that works for a certain percentage of people, but definitely not for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that idea of terminating therapy, if something isn't quote unquote achieved within a certain number of sessions, I personally find quite discordant with my own values because exactly as you say, Monique, you know, particularly when working with a neurodivergent clientele, often there's so many complex issues that come up. It's often the first time that they've been able to have a space where they feel validated or feel like um, their needs are valid Mm -hmm. and they feel connected in a way. Personally, I really prefer a compassion-focused therapy model. So if you're wanting to learn more about CFT, Paul Gilbert has a lot of really great articles um, about what that process is. Yeah, and there's a lady called Kristen Neff. So Kristen with a K-N-E-F-F. And she has a really good website that has a lot of free resources on it, including recorded exercises. She has a TED talk on self-compassion therapy and a really good book where she talks about her own personal journey with self-compassion. Yeah, great. So, you know, I think the primary focus of compassion-focused therapy um, is really that idea that when we don't have compassion for ourselves it's really difficult to have compassion for anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of our psychologists here, actually, Amanda Donnett, has a great definition for compassion. And she talks about how compassion is empathy in action. So empathy being the ability to connect with and um, relate to and understand suffering whether it's your own distress and suffering or someone else's distress and suffering. And then the action part of it is doing something about it. And, you know, in practice, that might look like, okay, I am really struggling to get out of bed right now because I'm so overwhelmed by everything going on. I'm having a really hard time at the moment. The empathy component of that is, yeah, wow, that makes so much sense why I'm feeling so overwhelmed right now. I can really understand why my body is reacting in this way, why I'm feeling this way. Um, And I'm not mad at myself for that. I'm not judging myself for that. Um, Yeah, this is a completely understandable reaction. And I'm in a lot of pain right now and I'm really suffering. The action part of it, so the other side of compassion is I'm going to do something for myself that's going to help me feel better. I'm going to go on a walk today. And that's the only goal I'm going to set myself. I don't particularly want to do that, but I know that's going to make me feel better. It's like, you know, as a parent with a a kid who is really sick, right? They might say, I don't want to have that medicine. It's disgusting. Actually being compassionate to them is saying, oh, babe, I know that this tastes so gross and you really don't want to have it, but you actually just have to have it because it is actually going to help. It's not compassionate to your child to say, oh, you're right, it does taste gross. Don't have it then. Mm. And then they just stay sick. Mm -hmm. It's not compassionate to yourself as an adult to say, okay, so I'm not going to do the things that I know are going to make me feel better. Mm. So compassion-focused therapy is really about identifying the source of your distress, letting go of judgment of your responses around how you respond to stress, manage stress, and then putting in action 
things that you know are going to improve your mental health, improve your coping, um, improve your your functioning in life. So for me, um, CFT seems to gel more with my kind of preferred approach um, therapeutically um, and my sort of values. And I find it it can be a really good place to start, particularly when someone has trauma work to do, because it's a nice place to sort of upskill um, in some of those regulation uh, skills and increase that sense of self-compassion, self-awareness. Yeah, I see it as a really good way of building that inner relationship with yourself. Mm. And, you know, we all have an inner critic, um, yeah. you know, that's just a fact, but it's building up that inner advocate that inner friend that's supporting you and yeah just developing that ability to be kind to yourself and I think you know for a lot of neurodivergent women as well to like yourself Mm. to actually be like no I'm a likable person Mm. and I like who I am Mm. because sometimes a lot of that inner critic stuff comes from a core feeling that you know I'm not likable Mm. And I need to change to be likable, to be someone that I, you know, this idealized version of who I would be if my life was perfect. Yeah. And I think self-compassion therapy is a really good way to help undo any guilt or shame that you might Mm. have around yourself for being neurodivergent or, you know, being in a world that doesn't fit you and maybe you didn't know why. Mm. And I think it can really help with that process of unmasking. Yeah, that's a really good point because I think, you know, the why of our behavior really matters. And sometimes when we're still trapped in that kind of framework of, well, there's something wrong with me, we might mask because we think, well, I have to, because I can't show people what's wrong with me. So that masking is coming from a place of shame. But when we've built that inner relationship with ourselves, as you've said, Monique, um, we might in some situations still decide to mask because we might think, okay, this isn't really a safe situation to kind of be my true self or, um, you know, I don't feel comfortable, but it's not coming from a place of shame anymore. It's coming from a place of intention and choice. Mm. We're not doing it because we feel like I have to, because I don't know, you know, my inner self will just terrify people. Um, We're doing it because it's an active choice Mm. and that makes all the difference. And it's not only masking that that's relevant for as well. Um, You know, so often a coping strategy that is positive and helpful and compassionate can look the same on the surface as a coping strategy that's actually not helping us. So, for instance, you know, isolating. Sometimes we might be doing that almost as a punishment towards ourselves, like, oh my God, you're an idiot. Just never talk to anyone ever again. Um, I'm just not going to call this person because it's going to burden them and I need to remove myself from society. (laughs) Um, You're isolating, but it's almost a punishment towards yourself. On the other hand, we could use isolation or time to ourselves as a really compassionate Um, useful tool. So we could be thinking, okay, I'm actually really overwhelmed by a bunch of really tricky social interactions I've had recently. Um, And to re-regulate my nervous system, I just need some time on my own. Mm. 
and I'm going to do something creative or I'm just going to go to bed earlier tonight or I'm going to watch my show in my room with the door shut, right? Um, If we're doing that with the intention of supporting ourselves and we're thinking, this is something I really need to feel okay and I'm allowed to do this thing because it's good for me versus using it as a punishment, um, very different outcomes. So I think that it's really important to kind of reflect on why you're doing the things that you're doing to cope um, and what purpose those tools are serving you. I guess one thing to mention about self-compassion therapy is, you know, it can be hard because a lot of people find it easy to feel compassion for others, but really difficult to turn it back and feel that compassion towards themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's just like what Michelle mentioned earlier about taking those small little country roads and through practice, turning them into highways. And it does get easier with practice. Mm. And yeah, just the last couple of things I'd like to mention about therapy is that different things work for different people. So really um, keep that in mind and just keep trying things because sooner or later you'll find something that does work for you. Um, And it's important not to sort of give up. And the last thing is, you know, if you're a clinician, listen to your client. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. Don't make assumptions. Listen to them. Ask what do they want? How did they want therapy to go um, and run with that? So thanks for tuning in today, guys. Um, I hope going through the therapeutic process and talking about some tools that we use um, as therapists has been helpful. And don't forget to check out our Facebook and Instagram pages, like and share them. And our petition for adults with the diagnosis of ADHD and adulthood to access equal medication rights is still going. So please check that out. Thanks for listening. Bye.